Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment that Christian has chosen is from the Fugue in D Major, from the Well-Tempered Clavier, Book 1. Let's see if you know this one. Okay. So Mozart dies and goes to heaven. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Good joke. Um, no. So so Mozart dies and goes to heaven, and he can hear the heavenly choir and orchestra rehearsing, and he goes in. He's looking for it, and he meets God. And God says, oh, welcome, Mozart. We're glad you're here. And Mozart says, oh, I I can hear the sounds of the angelic choir right now. I would love to go check it out and perhaps audition for it. So God says, actually, Herr Mozart, I can do you one better. Actually, we've reserved a special place for you in heaven. And we would like you to be the director of the heavenly chorus. So then Mozart goes, wow. What an incredible honor. I would love to do that, but but I have to ask, shouldn't that honor go to Bach? Mm-hmm. And then God says, oh, I'm Bach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the interview of the keyboardist who plays this particular prelude and fugue from the Well-Tempered Clavier, it touches on this this aspect of of Bach's like almost godliness, I guess you could say. <laughs> Harpsichordist is Guillermo Braquetta. I'm taking a guess at his Italian looking last name, even though he is from Argentina. In his uh, Spanish language interview here, he's talking about how daunting trying to approach the music of Bach is because it's so it's so well constructed. But then he says, I must be wrong there about it being so daunting because you can tell he wanted his music to be played not with all this awe and respect, pompousness. He goes on to say, Bach proved that in the time between him and us, there is little or nothing that is better than his work. Hmm. That is why we idolize him. Then he says that this idolization of Bach causes us, the way it happens to religious people, to have a certain fear of him, a kind of fearful respect that some people feel like about God. I feel like that about Bach. That's his interview. And this is kind of a sentiment that that you see a lot with musicians who have to deal with Bach and have to play Bach on a regular basis, I think. So I'm working backwards here in his interview because what happened was he was talking about how this fugue is actually not very harmonically complicated and that it basically centers around a flourishy gesture. It is a little fanciful, and Alex, we talk about this a lot depending on the musical style of the selection. Sometimes the music calls for it to be highly ornamented, 
This is an aspect of Baroque music. We talked about it on our second episode of this season with the cantata introduction of Nun kommt der Heiden Highland, PWV 61. The introduction was in a French overture style. The performers know to approach the music in a certain way to make it sound more regal. You could easily do that with the beginning of this fugue. This could be played way more ornamented in the way this harpsichordist plays it, but he explains himself about why he made the choices he did. He didn't want to overcomplicate it. Yeah. Part of the reason I chose this is that I played this on a harpsichord years ago, and when I did, I totally overdid it. I did the French overture style. I made those notes real short. I added a bunch of trills everywhere, and I really hammed it up. And um, <laughs> and I don't know if that was the right thing. It was probably good for... It was fun for me to do that, and also probably I did it just because I wanted to learn a little bit more about how to do Baroque ornamentation and how that felt. But I was yeah. probably kind of overdoing it, you know? So it's really refreshing to see this performance and this interview with this harpsichordist who says straight up, I don't have to overcomplicate this. I'm just going to play this kind of straightforward because the thing kind of has enough going on in terms of style and gesture. The wonderful description of the Netherlands Bach Society website in the Olive Bach site for this exact fugue, they compare it to like hat tipping or like a formality that you would do in this 18th century Europe. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It says, I take my hat off. Apparently it's been theorized that Bach was making an ironic comment on Polish hat flourishing because apparently the nobles in Poland were particularly complicated with their rituals of taking the hats off, twirling and like kissing the cheek and doing all these things and bowing and just like you name it, all the little social little things that you do in polite society. They did those. Maybe he's making fun of them, but it's kind of funny to listen to this fugue and just have a little bit of an imagination of a comical thing that's happening, like a scene. We can listen to Bach without this, of course, in an abstract way, but it's kind of funny to to think character enters, does a hat flip. Another yep. character has to do the same thing in, in answer, you know, just like a fugue. would do musically third character fourth character and then at the end it gets a little hectic and everyone's maybe trying to outdo each other with the bowing and the hat flipping and stuff yeah love that which is why i think this this harpsichordist bracetta makes a really savvy move here and says i don't need to overdo this it's already got all those written in those are it's so it's so memorable this fugue subject when yeah. Bach sits down to write a fugue subject, he's got it. It has to be very noticeable so that every time it enters, you know that there's an entry. Right, and that's what stuck out to me right away about this. I mean, it's a good example for people who don't really know about fugues because you can always tell when the subject or its answer, which sounds just like it in a different key, is going to enter because it always starts with those really fast flourishes. And anything that is not those fast flourishes is simply not the main theme. It's something else. You know, it's one of the other episodes and connecting material.
yeah, it's hard to miss eight really, really fast notes in a row. Yeah, and, and if you're not used to listening to fugues, it's sometimes when the rhythms aren't that different between the subject and the rest of the material, it can be hard to figure out what's going on, right? And this is one of, the, like you said, Christian, this is one of the easier ones to to pull off as far as performance goes, and it's pretty approachable. But I do I do like that um, that comment by the harpsichordist because it kind of goes back to what we always talk about with Baroque music, that you can ornament that stuff. But he's, it sounds like he wants to preserve the Bachness of this <laughs> instead of putting his mm-hmm. own stamp, stamp as much on it. But I mean, in a way, he's doing, he's doing something very particular. He's doing his own thing, but it's true. He's doing, he's doing less of the extra ornamentation that a lot of performers have done with this work. And he's also playing it slower than I've heard it played in most recordings, which I like. We, you know, whenever I comment on whether or not I like the performances by the Netherlands Bach Society, I think I've always been positive instead of negative. And we've talked a bit before about, obviously, they're just a very high quality group, but also has to do with interpretive choices. And I generally really like their interpretive choices of the music of Bach. And here's a great example. Um, you know, part of that comes down to these interview videos and how you could tell these performers are really aware of these interpretive choices and making a good case for them. And that helps you, the listener or viewer, get on their side, I suppose. But I really do think that when I listen to these, I like the choices uh, most of the time that the performers do in this in this group. And this is no exception. I like how you said he lets it he lets Bach be Bach here. That there's no missing the entry of any of these little hat flips. Yeah. The thirty second notes it's another thing about it. it's just really fast and it's notated as really fast notes. And it starts on a on an upbeat, which is also interesting. I mean he, he calls it in his interview, he said there's no missing the theme. You always recognize it. It's very strong rhythmically, he says. Fuerte in Spanish, he says meaning strong, not necessarily loud. I think he means like bold, rhythmically bold. Yeah. And there's nothing in this entire fugue that's a straight eighth note pattern, like something that sounds like a consistent pulse, like da, 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 da. There's nothing like that. Mm, it's either bum, ba bum, ba bum, or da 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 dum, or something like da, dig it a dun, dig it a dun, those kind of things. It's, it's, it lilts a lot. It doesn't just, yeah, it doesn't settle. Right. There's there's hardly even any consistent sixteenth notes. There are a couple of bum, I guess bum, there are bum, yeah there bum, are a few bum, bum. yeah you're right there's but it, but it barely yeah and they they stand out these little falling motifs yeah there are some truly lovely chords that appear as a result of a bit of a deception and. The first one is approached quite smoothly. And on the beat, we have a wonderful four-note chord. Call this chord a seventh chord because it has an interval between two of its notes of a seventh. It's one of of my favorite arrangements of a seventh chord, particularly the way the notes are arranged. Yeah, voicing, right? Mm-hmm. It really matters which note is on the bottom as to how these chords sound, but also how they function. And that brings me to the second one. The second one is, I think, more striking because it's preceded by a chord that really th- you really think it's just going to go straight home. 
it has the textbook second to last chord, last chord type of deal with a cadence at the end. Mm -hmm. We've spoken about cadences a little bit before. And it does have that second to last chord. And then when it is about to terminate on that last chord, it's not quite right. That last note, last note should have gone up. It does not go up. It stays. The result is what sounds to our modern ears as like a seventh chord. A major seventh chord, like the other one, except arranged differently. Different bass note. Almost seems like a jazzier type of thing, but it's not. It's all within the service of linear voice leading, and it goes somewhere else. It was never really a seventh chord. It was going down. It was all about the melody not finalizing and going up to where we wanted it to go, but working its way down instead. And yeah. those simple deceptions are, I think, truly beautiful. And it's not actually unique to Bach. Handel does this kind of thing all the time. Um, composers of this of this era do. So it's not exactly, those two things are not exactly my final moment. Yeah, but they are kind of magical, you know, when those things happen. I also really like how on that second one that you mentioned, Christian, yeah, it doesn't, it's a G chord. And like you said, that top note is one below G and it doesn't resolve up and it just keeps going down. But really, maybe in a few measures later, it really does hit G as part of a thing, like a part of a big leap. I think when Bach is thinking, this, this is something we haven't really talked about much, but composers think large scale, you know, when they write things as well as small scale. And Bach's got this idea as he's writing this of how it's going to end, but not just not just that, but kind of in a medium scale of setting up certain things that pay off in a few measures time, you know? And I, mm -hmm. I like I like this because this is what all this is what all art really does, right? Any kind of art, but especially if you're thinking about storytelling or screenwriting even or something like that, where you want there to be, especially if it's something that has to do with a story, you want there to be setups and payoffs throughout to keep keep interest and to keep things moving and to keep development happening whether it's character development or whether it's like musical theme right it all has to like propel you on toward the end this is just these are just little little moments of that just it's really charming yeah if it's resolved too quickly it's not satisfying yeah and so that that delay the delay of resolution and what you're describing alex is a longer term melodic resolution yeah. that's not even really we're not even really talking about music theory harmony right now. You're noticing that harmonically and melodically that top note wanted to go up right there, but it didn't. It stayed and then it went down. And then a few seconds later, there's a wonderful huge leap way up to that note. The note that we were left longing for in yeah. the first place. in a completely different context and it is resolved differently and it happens happens differently and it doesn't exactly fulfill what we missed a few seconds before because it's in a different context now right 
but that's what makes it more interesting. And that's part of the, the metaphor of, of music as just a metaphor for like experiences of life. We've talked before about how, you know, if composers do what you think they're going to do, it's kind of like feels like a metaphor for things going the way you expect in your day or whatever, right? If if the composer subverts it, it's things going not the way you expect. So it gives you a little bit of anxiety about something. You know, at the end of a piece, it feels like it gets back to the home key that feels like returning home, right? That kind of analysis is simple, almost to the point of being cliched and how it's talked about in, in, as a simple, as a way of sort of breaking down, simplifying what music metaphor can be in in a specific piece of, or in any general piece of music, I should say. But here we have something a little more complex, like you said, Christian. It's a resolution or it's a, we eventually get to that note, right, that was set up. It's a payoff, but the context is different. So the metaphor there could be like, you thought something was going to happen in your life. You waited. Uh, It didn't happen when you thought it would. But then later it did happen. But by then, your perspective has changed or it happened in like a different way that you thought it would. Then when you look back on it later, you think, huh, that did not work out the way I thought, but it certainly was a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so Exactly. Music exists in time and our life exists in time. And that's why music makes such a good metaphor for expectation and longing and resolution and delayed resolution because it, it's, yeah. it's temporal. Yeah, and I will say that I... I don't think that that type of metaphor in music hits hard for every single person. Some people find that really compelling or that idea of that metaphor. Uh, some some don't, but I do think that everybody at least feels that in some way because music is related to your past experience, right? You you know what you think a piece of music is going to sound like, whether you can put that into words or not, and that sets your expectations for what's going to happen. So these these connections are happening in your brain, whether you, uh, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not, but it's fun to explore them sometimes. So there is a frantic flurry of hat brandishing, <laughs> which makes my last little moment of the day where it seems like four or five characters suddenly try to outdo each other with their little tricks. There is a very logical musical pattern to these five entries, and they are all separated by the same intervallic distance. That is, like on a piano, they're the same distance apart from each other. It does seem like the fourth one is higher than the third one, and it is, but relatively speaking, each one is the same musical distance apart if you were to continue going down. Right. Each one is the interval of a perfect fifth lower than the last. And when passages of music move through fifths like this, we call this moving through the circle of fifths. This is a music theory term to represent the different ways that musical keys are related to each other. And Bach did this all the time when he needed to wind down a fugue and sort of get back around to the harmony that would make it so that it ended in the same key as it began. So in music pitch terms, we have a thi- uh, figure that starts on F sharp, then B, then E, then A, then D. And even though those don't sound like 
they're lined out in a scale because they're not. They are lined out in this circle of fifths. Each one is a fifth apart, like you said, Christian. And like in most cadences at the end of Baroque pieces, you would have the dominant chord resolving to the tonic, which is a fifth apart. And what these all are are just like stacked up versions of that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like it feels like it's a dominant to that note. Now that's the dominant to that note. Now that's the dominant to that note. Now that's the dominant to, oh, okay, finally we hit D, which was our tonic. Yeah. And to stack them up like this five in a row, it almost gets a little bit silly. And maybe that's part of this. You know, this is whole metaphor of the Polish aristocratic social rituals. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It just kind of builds an intensity in almost a humorous way. Yeah, it's nice to sometimes, uh, you know, there's a lot of great, powerful music by Bach that has a lot of pathos, but it's nice to sometimes uh, have something a little lighter like this. You're right, I think, Christian, it's it's uh, it's supposed to be about something not very serious, if it's supposed to be mm-hmm. about anything at all. It's light. It's light music, as far as uh, Bach goes. <laughs> and it was part of a collection that he got to write without a deadline which is unusual for him, considering all those cantatas he wrote week after week on really tough deadlines. Yeah, which we'll talk about uh, next week. (laughs) Yep, and then you can also tell that a lot of it was written pedagogically, like the prelude to this this fugue seems like a right-hand exercise. It's just this kind of thing. He, he He had a lot of students that would come over and take keyboard lessons with him. This kind of thing gives me a lot of hope for being a music teacher because being a music educator has a certain amount of slog to it. But then what makes me feel so much better is to think that Bach did that. (laughs) He had tons of students. He cared a lot about the education of young people. And a lot of the music, the wonderful music that he wrote was for them and for their education. And it doesn't make it any less perfect of a musical composition just for that reason. Yeah. Even though it's daunting to think about, because he devoted so much clearly genuine work into what he did, we're obviously not supposed to play his music overly fanciful. And it doesn't get much better than Bach, so it's no surprise that we idolize him the way we do. And now, here is that circle of fifths moment from the fugue in D major from the Well-Tempered Clavier, book one. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of the prelude and fugue in D major, BWV. 850 by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. That way you'll get all the new ones as they come in. Also check out amomentofbach.com and tell your friends about the show. One cool thing too is that I will get to conduct a performance of the Motet Jesu Meine Freude coming up on March 13th. So If you are in the Orange County or L.A. County area, we'd love to see you there. It'll be at St. John's Lutheran Church. 
We'll put a link in the description. We talked about Yezu Mine of Florida way back on episode 7 in season 1. It's one of my favorites. It's really Bach's largest choral motet. Just a fantastic masterwork. We should do more episodes on it as well. Yeah, I thought about doing that for next week, but I have a different one picked out for next week, which I am excited about, and that is BWV 156, Ich stehe mit einem Fuß im Grabe, which is a cantata. The English translation is, I am standing with one foot in the grave. <laughs> Intriguing. <laughs> and Alex, the part that I'm sure you must have picked for your moment is quite a literal musical device about that exact phrase isn't it yeah it is there's a really great well i'll talk about it next week of course but there's a really great uh moment that i'm excited to share until next time enjoy those moments